We do a lot of weddings here at Hope. This summer, for some weird reason, uh, we don't have a lot in the building, but we do a lot. <clears throat> and the whole tradition of, of a, a wedding ceremony is very theologically significant. And the groom stands usually up front waiting for the bride to come. The bride is the most honored guest. Everybody stands when the bride comes in. And if you have any problems with Jesus being a forceful uh, person in your life, or if you think he's dogmatic, realize that he does these things. If you read Ephesians 5 carefully, he, he does those things in order to make and present to himself the most beautiful bride. If you're here today and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are the bride of Christ. It's used to show you how much worth and value he puts on you. And it says in Ephesians 5, where you think Paul's talking about marriage, and actually, he's talking about Jesus Christ. And he's saying, when that bride comes down the aisle and how honored she is and she's smiling, what Christ does in your life and even the hard things he's taking you through right now is to present to himself, it says in Ephesians chapter 5, the most beautiful bride that he can possibly have. We're here this morning, and, and I, I'm excited this morning uh, to get it back into the Gospel of John. If you're new with us, we've been in a, so far, it's about eight-month journey through the Gospel of John. We're in chapter five. You may laugh, think you're only in chapter five. I was part of a Bible study. Anybody a Big Ten boy kneeling around? Neither. I thought I saw him. Uh, yeah, there you are. We're two years by the time we got into John chapter five, so this is nothing. So you guys are, are, are doing just great. We're in the, the Gospel of John right now. Thomas Jefferson is given, at least, uh, notoriety for this quote, eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. And he, he, after I did a little research on this, I'm not sure if he actually said those exact words or somebody morphed it into that. You know how those great quotes kind of thing go. But he's given the credit for this quote, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty or is the price of freedom. And I have, I'm an American history buff. I love the revolutionary period. I read anything I can get my hands on about that period. Uh, anything, David McCullough with uh, the new one, His Majesty. Uh, no, that was uh, Joseph Ellis, uh, His Majesty. And what was, what was uh, 1776 by David McCullough? You guys don't have any idea what I'm talking about, but that's all right. These are great books, and uh, you learn about great people. And Jefferson is, is stating here something that is incredibly true. Eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, or if you're here this morning and you're wondering what it means to be a follower of Christ, let me tell you that there are two caricatures of Christianity which are not Christianity. But they're caricatures of Christianity that are on either side of what biblical Jesus following is. Think of it like this. Think of it, you're up in northern Minnesota on one of the, say, say a logging road or a, a road up there, and it's in the middle of winter. And I've been there, I was recently there, and if you're not careful, where do you put the truck? Deeply in the snowbank, all right? If you're, you're not, maybe you're kicking up the tires a little bit around the corner to impress the boys in the back. I don't know what you're doing, but somehow you end up with your truck deep in the snowbank. That could possibly happen, just hypothetically speaking. <clears throat> now, it, these, these suckers are one lane, one lane and one lane only. 
You've got snowbanks on either side, and after that, the, the, the trick is, it's deceitful. It looks like a snowbank, but it's really a big hill, you know, uh, these kind of elevated, and there's like, goes like, that's a ditch, and then the snowbank makes it look like you can bounce off it, but really, anyway, the, uh, to justify my, my uh, ignorance here. All right, now, walking with Jesus is going on this road, this one path road. On either side, there are two dangers. There are two dangers. The first side is looking at Christianity as a system of thought or a system of rules. It's a religion. It's legalism. That's what, what that side is. It's a danger. It's a huge danger. We're going to look at today. <clears throat> we looked at it last week. Jesus comes across some very religious people who fall into looking at if you don't follow the ways we expect religion to happen, then you can't be authentic. Jesus Christ the Son of God was right in their midst <clears throat> and they completely missed him because they were so caught up in the rules. But the other side is just as dangerous. And the other side is, is oh, there's no rules. Don't worry about anything. Just love God and do whatever you want. No big deal. Just, it's called antinomianism, or, which means no law or license. I have a license to do anything. Now, in our country, we have both of these errors. <clears throat> Man, I stole my voice. We have both of these errors going on right now. And I don't know which one your particular group is more possibly susceptible to. I've been around fighting fundamentalists, and I've been around extreme liberals. Both are dangerous. I'm serious. Both are very dangerous. I grew up in an extremely liberal Church, where if you put a gun to my head and said, what does it mean that Jesus Christ died on the cross? I could not tell you. I knew about arms to Nicaragua, that Reagan shouldn't be building up arms. Uh, not his arms, but I mean uh, nuclear arms. Uh, I knew those things, but what was Christ's death, atoning death on the cross for? How did that cover my sin that I needed to accept Jesus Christ in order to be uh, my sins covered. Those things were just lost. I don't remember any of that. Now you might be sitting there going, yeah, right, good, that's bad. But you might be on the other side. You might be completely missing Jesus Christ like these Pharisees did in John chapter 5 because you're so caught up in religion and, and rules. And I hope, I, I hope that I've offended every single person in this room because I go back and forth a lot of times. It is slippery on this road, and you need to have eternal vigilance. Open your Bible up to John chapter 5. We're going to continue on with what's going on in our series on, um, on our series that we're calling Meeting Jesus Christ Through His Signs and Ministry. It's the second part of the Gospel of John. We're in, we were looking last week at John chapter 5. There was a healing at the pool. I just want to uh, reiterate what's going on in John chapter 5, starting in verse 6. Uh, Jesus goes to this place. He finds this man lying by a pool. It's a place where people would go who are, um, uh, need healing. They're crippled or they're lame or they're blind or whatever. And Jesus sees one guy. There's people all over the place. He sees one guy. And he's there. He's there to pick a fight. Because he's not there to have this major healing ministry. That's not what happens. He doesn't go around healing everybody. He does one guy and he's picking a fight. We'll see that in just a second. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? It's a great question. Do you want to get well? 
Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me get into the pool when the water is stirred. When I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up. And here's where he picks a fight. He says, pick up your mat and walk. That's, he could just heal the guy, but he doesn't do that. He says, pick up your mat and walk. We're going to see where that's significance here in just a, in a second. Verse 9, at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. So he's got this bed or this, I don't know, roll up or something thing, and he picks it up, and he walks around with it. Now that's significant, wouldn't mean anything to us, unless you understood Jewish custom. If you look at the next verse, it says, the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, nothing about the healing, what's the deal? It's the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. Actually, it's not a Bible law, it's one that they made up. But it says you shouldn't do any work on the Sabbath and even you can't carry around a mat. Can't even do that. They made that up. And he replies, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. And so, as we said, like this cartoon shows, uh, gasp, carrying thy mat on the Sabbath. I was minding my own business. Wham, bam. I was hit by a drive-by healing. Jesus comes by. He heals him. And he leaves. Doesn't even tell him who he is. We're going to see that in just a second. Doesn't even tell him who he is. And this guy says, I, I don't know anything. I, I just got healed, man. They completely missed the healing because the guy's carrying his mat. Whoa. Now, we've got to be careful of that too because we're just in that same boat. Like I said, sometimes this is a slippery slope. Either way, got to be very careful. We can completely meet, miss what God is doing in someone's life because perhaps they're still involved in some behavior that hasn't been completely cleaned up yet and we just, we, we focus on that one behavior. Smoking, for instance. It's, it keeps, it's on my do list to start smoking again. I just keep forgetting. The, uh, I personally do not care if you smoke. People say, well, it's really bad for your health. Eating a cheeseburger is worse for your health. Okay? Or as bad, we don't have any, any, anybody at McDonald's. Now, I have other issues with tobacco and tobacco companies and that whole thing and how they did it. And e yeah, okay. But, for instance, we, we, we put smokers sometimes in this, in this category. I am from the Iron Range, and it's amazing to me because everywhere you went in the Iron Range, it's just a cloud of blue, you know? I mean, you just reek of smoke. And my, my folks didn't smoke, but it was really rude to tell someone, you can't smoke at our house. So our house always smelled of smoke because people smoked. That's what you did. And it's amazing to me sometimes how people, don't go smoking. Don't tell me your pastor started until you started smoking, but, uh, you know, what's... Yeah, it's not a good thing to do. I don't encourage that. But sometimes we miss what God's doing in people's life because they're standing next to us. Uh-oh, they smoked. It's like, so what? Or other things. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't, don't eat Big Macs necessarily or in moderation. Smoke in moderation. It's great. I, I, you, <laughs> if you can do it, you know, that's whatever. Yeah, just don't inhale. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yeah. Don't let it own you. That's the big thing. Don't let it own you. Don't let anything own you. I, uh, I, I, I used to like to smoke a pipe, and I realized one day it was owning me, and so I said, oh, not going to do this. Anyway. All right. Now, let's keep going on in this story. So they asked him, verse 12, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. It really was a drive-by deal. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse 
It may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So Jesus, somehow we read a little bit in the white space here that he let him know that I'm the Christ, I'm Jesus Christ, I'm the one, I'm the one who healed you. And so he wants, Jesus is wanting to pick a fight with these guys, these religious guys. And he goes and he tells the guy, oh, you didn't know who it was? I'll tell you who it is so that you can get it right so we can get a fight going. All right, and here's the fight. This is where we left off last week. We'll pick up new now here, verse 16. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted them, him. So we don't know, John is really not into giving us clear indications of how long these things take place. All right, we have no idea whether this is five minutes or five weeks. Okay, how long is this persecution? Well, I don't know. We don't know, but there was persecution. And, and the reality is, John doesn't care, you as a reader, no. But he wants to let you know, persecution is happening. Jesus says to them, again, either in that confrontation there or in another one later, we don't know, but somehow he says to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Whoa. Jesus is picking a fight, and these guys now want to take him out. Not, and here's the reasons. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. There it is. Two charges. Number one, you're a Sabbath breaker. You do not follow the Jewish customs. You are a Sabbath breaker. Number two, you are a blasphemer. You are a blasphemer. You say that you're equal to God. You hear those? Those are the charges. Now, Jesus answers one of the charges in verse 17 and the, the other charge, he's going to answer in what I'm going to finish up today. And then really it's one kind of long discourse, but we don't have time to do it all today. Cor will finish it up next week. It's, it's a, a whole series of thoughts he has about he and the Father being one. It's amazing. <laughs> I bet you if Jesus had a cell phone, he wouldn't have set it to stun either. And that would have been a third claim. No, no. Anyway. <laughs> Sabbath breaker, blasphemer. Okay. Set thy cell phone to stun. Um, now, where was I? Jesus talked about that. Uh, okay. Now, verse 17, he says this. He says, my father is always at work and I'm, I'm at work also. Now, what he's saying is this. He says, you got this Sabbath thing? You got to understand, you got the Sabbath thing going on? That's great. And you talk about not working on the Sabbath. That's fine. And you say that God rested on the Sabbath, and that's how your theology of the Sabbath developed. On the seventh day, because God created the world in, in six days, on the seventh, he rested. He didn't rest because he was tired. He rested because he was done. And he set up something that, so that on, on the seven-day week that we now have, there would be a day where we set aside our other interests and we make sure that we're refocusing ourselves on God. That's the point. And Jesus is saying to these, these guys, I just want you to do a little, little imagination here. What if every Saturday, what if God actually really took the day off? Do you have any, do you have any understanding the omnipotent power involved in running the universe. And how much effort it just takes just to take molecules to hang together. So if God just for a minute said, you know, 
I knew the R&R. I knew the bed and breakfast time here. That everything would just go woof, and it just wouldn't be. And woof, it'd come back together after that weekend, you know? <laughs> He's basically saying it's utterly ridiculous for you to think that God takes time off. He stops being God. He stops ceasing to look over the whole world and keeping things together and ordering the affairs of people. He said, my father is always at his work to this very day. God works 24-7, 365, all the time. And then he says this, and I'm working too. And guess what? I get to work because I am God. Now, they, they are after him, and then verse 19 through 24 happens. Jesus unloads. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. I'm going to read the whole thing, then we're just going to kind of go a little bit by a little bit. I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but he entrusts all judgment to the Son, that, he may, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. When Jesus says these kind of words to highly fundamentalistic religious people, he has a death wish. Those are death wish words to someone. When you say those kind of words to people that are rejecting you. Remember, he already said that I, the Jews are trying to kill him. When you say those kind of things... You're a blasphemer unless you think Jesus is who he claims to be. This is radical stuff. Sometimes I don't think we read the Bible with, with the intensity that it's happening. This is a tense moment. This is a jaw-quivering moment as the Jews were listening to him. Urgh, gnashing of teeth. I don't even know what that looks like, but he'd be gnashing, gnashing. Urgh. That's what's going on here. This is intense. And Jesus picked this. He picked this fight. He wanted to go there. He wanted to communicate this. And it's beautiful. Let's just take it a little bit out of time. 19, first, 19, the first half of 20. He says, the son can do nothing by himself. He only sees what his father's doing. Father loves the son, shows him all that he does. Some people think this is an analogy. Could be. Where Jesus is just trying to make, a, uh, even some think he's referring to uh, his father, Joseph. And that as, the, as he was being trained in, in uh, carpentry, that the father lets a son, you know, become into his trade or whatever. I'm, I'm not sure if it's an analogy or not. I don't necessarily see it real clearly. I don't think it, it uh, misses anything there. But he, he is clearly making the case in the next half of the verse. It says, yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things. Oh, excuse me, excuse me. Oop, 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 oop. Yeah, yeah. For the love of the Son shows them all things. Yes. Yes to your amazement. He will show even greater things than these. So in other words, Jesus is making the claim here, and this is claim number one. I am God's son. Now we're all sons and daughters of God. That's one clear thing. Jesus is, that's small s. Jesus is saying capital S. I am God's son. Whew. It's a radical claim. It's a radical claim that he's making. Look at verse 21. 
He says, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Now, this is just, man, it's amazing. You got you to read this stuff like it's true because it is. Because look at that. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so he, Jesus is acknowledging that God is the one who will raise the dead and make them alive on judgment day. There, just as that happens, he says this. He says, even so, the Son gives life. And then he says it this way. To whomever I choose, I want to do it to. I have like ultimate authority. You see this whole group of, of people laying by a pool? I'm going to choose that guy and I'm going to heal him. Because that's the guy who felt like it. Now, that sounds a little weird. Don't get off on predestination all that stuff today. We'll bring you there another day. But today, don't go there. What Jesus is trying to make here is saying, I am God's son. I am God the son. I have come and you are missing me. You claim to be a follower of God. You are missing me. Look at verse 22. Moreover, it says, not do I just give life. Moreover, the father judges no one but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. <laughs> He's saying this. Pharisees and all these religious people, guess what? On judgment day, I'm going to be the one you're going to stand before. <sighs> Dude, that is a radical claim. That is a radical claim. He's saying, you, you, you reject me now? Hmm, let's think about what your vertical will be on that day. Hmm. You're going to stand before me. You're not going to stand before the Father. The Father has given to me that claim or that, that opportunity to stand there. Not only that, the reason they did that, verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. You know what? If you're missing me, you've missed the Father. You can't have it both ways. You can't reject me and say you love God because I'm here. And he says this crazy word, honor. God doesn't just throw around those kind of words like honor. If, you, if you're familiar with in Isaiah 42, 42 verse 8, one of, my, one of my favorite passages, it says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my, I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. That is mine. And it's only mine, and nobody else can have it. And Jesus here is saying, the reason that he does this, verse 23, is that they may honor the Son as they honor the Father. If that's not a claim to deity, I don't know what is. It's all over this book. And then he says, he who does not honor the Son, if you reject Jesus Christ, you have rejected God. They are the same. You cannot have it any other way. And then he sums it up with this amazing statement, verse 24. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. What a claim. What a claim. He's saying, listen, I'm going to be the judge and so that everybody will honor me. But let me tell you, I'll tell you what the vertical will be right now. I'll tell you what the You can know on this side of eternity what that side of eternity, the, 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 the uh, judgment will be. It's real clear. I got two characteristics or two criteria. Here they are. Number one, have you heard? And number two, have you believed? 
Now, in American culture, we think the word heard and believed, we, we take those and say hearing means one thing and believing means another thing. You got to put it into a Jewish mindset because they don't. They mean the exact same thing. They mean the exact same thing. To a Jewish person who heard this, you would hear, I shouldn't use the word in the definition, should I? To a person who was having words in their brain from another person's head, what was another word? Give me a, what's a, here, what's another word for here? Listen, to a person who was listening to Jesus speaking, okay, thank you, um, what they would comprehend or hear <laughs> is, uh, is, is these words from Isaiah. This is on the front of our worship folder. It says, Isaiah 55 says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me, hear me. That your soul may live. It doesn't mean I just heard the words. Listening and hearing mean you come in acceptance of. One of my favorite Old Testament guys is Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a nut. And God puts him through amazing things. He's got this valley where he's looking over. Go one more. Yeah. He's got this valley that he's, he's looking over and it's a vision that he has and, and, and it's his vision of dry bones. I, I love this passage, Ezekiel 37. And this would have been in their mind. It says, The hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of the valley. This is Ezekiel, an Old Testament prophet that they would have been very familiar with. It was full of bones. He led me to and fro among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. You ever seen wet bones? I don't know. But this, I, think, I think he's just trying to say they're dead. These are dead bones. Again, never seen bones that were all of a sudden, you know, anyway. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? Now Ezekiel's learned by this time, by chapter 37, don't ever answer God on these kind of things, right? Because there's bones, they're dry, they're dead, I'm not going to answer, right? That's what he says. He says, uh, uh, I said, oh, sovereign Lord, you alone know. <laughs> Good answer, right, man? Good answer. You alone know. I ain't going down that trap. All right. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones. Here it is. Hear the word. Do you see that? Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I'll make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I'll put breath in you, and you'll come to life. Then you'll know that I am the Lord. Ooh. These guys knew Ezekiel 37. So when you hear John 5, 24, they knew Ezekiel 37. And what this vision was is saying, I can make dead things live. I bring things back out of life. And how do I do it? By my word. And how do you respond? By hearing. And hearing means more than just, I got the words comprehended. It means I respond to it. Now look back at John 5, 24. He says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word, there it is, just from Ezekiel 30, 37. Same phrase. Jesus is totally making a deity claim here. I am God. If you hear my word, 
and you believe him who sent me, you will have eternal life. That's a flat out truth. If you hear my word and believe him who sent me, you will have eternal life and will not be condemned. You've crossed over from death to life. I'm going to come back to that thought, but I want to go through the last four verses of what we're covering, five verses of what we're covering today, because all it does is illustrate verse 24. Verse 25, I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and all those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. There we go again. Life given through Christ, and he's going to be the judge. Do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil rise to be condemned. Now, I think there's one thing that uh, as we... Especially in Minnesota, you know, we want to be kind and nice, and that's good. I like Minnesota nice. I'm a Minnesota nice guy. But there's a real heaven, and there's a real hell. There really is. Heaven is described in Scripture very vaguely, and so is hell, quite honestly. Hell's the, heaven is described often. I think the best place, it's a place of life. A place where, where, where you will just constantly be alive. I don't know if you've ever had about three, or three to five seconds in your life where you just, all of a sudden, everything felt right. Imagine that for the rest of eternity. Things will just feel right. Primarily because you're going to be seeing Christ all the time. Everything will be as it should be. Relationships, you're designed to live in perfect relationships, and right now you have none of them. You have none of them. The best you have is one half, and that's God's relationship towards you. Your relationship towards God is a bit flawed. And we're not designed to live that way, and it's frustrating as all get out. Heaven is not that place. Heaven is the place where everything is right, because that's the way it was. It's the Garden of Eden on steroids. It's perfect. It's right. It's right. It's a beautiful place. You're satisfied all the time and becoming more and more satisfied. You, you know all and yet you're learning all the time. Hell is described in Scripture as the anti-heaven. It's the opposite. 2 Thessalonians. Paul describes it this way. He says, all this is evidence that God's judgment is right and as a result you'll be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among, uh, to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you have believed our testimony to you. What's hell? Hell's described here very clearly. 
as a place of punishment, everlasting destruction, and way more important than that, shut out from the presence of God. Death, by definition, means separation. When I die in my body, I'm separated from life. When you die eternally, what you are is separated from God. It is hell. Don't go there. How do you not go there? Hear and believe. Hearing and believing. And I would argue from this passage and from other places in the New Testament, it's, that's the beginning phase and it cha a changed life is what it lasts out be. That's where Jesus says at the end, those who've done good to life, those who haven't, haven't. I'm not trying to say you're saved by your works, but it's an evidence that you've been saved, that something has happened in your life. Let me ask you this morning, flat out, are you hearing and believing? The number one reason why I decided to become a follower of Christ was because I did not want to go to hell. Now, I think Christianity is a million times more than that. Please, I hope you hear that. But it's not less than that. It's not less than that. Christ came and he's got a lifeboat and you're drowning. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you are drowning. And he has got a lifeboat. But you've got to decide to get in. You've got to hear and believe. Now, those words are in the present tense too. It said, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. It does not say, whoever heard my word and believed him who sent me. In other words, it's an ongoing thing. People, other people in this room, you're saying, well, I've already, I've already done that when I was three years old, but I'm living like hell now. It doesn't really make any difference. It makes a huge difference. That's not what the Bible says. It says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Let me close with this question. Very question that we've been studying this whole time. And the, really the point of what Jesus is trying to get across is who do, you, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Have you slipped in either one of those two things we talked about in the beginning? Have you slipped into either legalism, fundamentalism, religiosity? Jesus is a, a system of rules. If I do this, he'll do that. Or have you slipped the other way, which says nothing applies? It doesn't really matter. I can make this up as I go along. There is propositional truth, and I'm just, we just read the passage, what Jesus is saying here. Who do you say that I am? Let's pray together. Lord, this passage is one of the most beautiful passages we have. That whoever hears your word and believes him who sent me has eternal life will not be condemned. God, that is our only hope. Lord Jesus, not because uh, we know our Bibles well, we're going to see that 
that the Pharisees knew their Bibles really well. They diligently studied the scriptures we're going to see. But they didn't know you. It's not because we come to church. It's not because we're part of a Bible study. It's not because we do anything. It's because we hear and believe. So God, I want to pray for people in this room right now, God. Right now, this morning. For someone who is on that border, whether or not decide they want to follow you. God, let them know that everything hangs on that. Everything hangs on what you do with Jesus Christ. So I pray, Lord Jesus, in ways that my words don't make any sense that you'd be speaking this morning, just as you did with me uh, when I heard this message and it was clear. You just speaking to me on what it meant for me to become a follower of you, what it meant for me to lay down my life, what it meant for me to say, Jesus Christ, I will follow you to death if necessary. So God, I pray for that. I pray for those in this room that you give them the courage that even now, or even as I'm speaking, as these last songs are sung, afterward, or maybe be hours afterwards like it was with me, that you would speak and you would draw them to yourself and they would bend their knee to you and say, Jesus Christ, be my Savior. I need you. I'll follow you as Lord. Lord, I pray for people in this room who at some point in their life they've done that. But the text is in the present tense. I need you just as much today as I needed you April 21st, 1983 when I first bent my knee to you. I need to hear you. I need to believe you. I need to, in any way, shape, or form, if anything's come into my life or in any of our lives where we are rejecting you or there's things coming in and we're saying it's not a big deal, no, it's a big deal. We need to run away from it. So Jesus, would you allow this day to be a gift to us so that we'd put you in the right place? Pray all this, Lord, in your precious name.